Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 236. Today on the podcast, I am so delighted to be sitting down with Tiffany Ingram, again, one of our very rare double features here on the Bossed Up Podcast, because she was on last summer talking all about how to boss up your wardrobe on a budget, because she does have a whole world of knowledge when it comes to style, fashion, and presence at work. However, today we're having her on to talk about a completely different area of expertise. She is a very multi-talented, multi-passionate person, and I'm really excited for you to hear her take on really leveraging your influence at work to create change, specifically focusing on age and race at work and those intersections and how they play together in our current workplace. So a little bit about Tiffany. She's currently a doctoral candidate at Drexel University, where she really studies education, leadership, and human resource management. She's also a K-12 education professional working in special education compliance for the Office of the State Superintendent of Education. Outside of work, she's a career and style influencer at policyandfashion.com, where she shares great career and fashion advice to inspire millennial women to look fabulous in the workplace and on the weekend. She created policy and fashion out of a need to help young women decode the unwritten rules of the workplace and learn to cultivate meaningful relationships to excel in their careers. She works to motivate women of all shapes and sizes to be confident and stand in their power with style and grace. And today we want to really talk about how to leverage that power for the kind of change we need in the world and in our workplaces right now. Tiffany, welcome back to the Bossed Up Podcast. I'm so grateful to have you here. Thank you for having me again. Well, it was so great. I'm I'm so excited to chat with you um, because I feel like you are one of those people who are so multi-passionate about what you do. And the last episode we had you on, episode 148, which I'll link to in the show notes, was an excellent one, but it was focused more on the fashion side that you like to work in as a fashion blogger. But today we're going on a totally different journey together, right? A little different. And I'm excited to have you join us to talk about frankly, presence at work, which is related to fashion in some ways, but specifically presence at work as a young Black woman in America. Tell me, first of all, a little bit about the research you've been doing lately as part of your doctoral program into this and how it might relate to what's happening in the world right now. Yes, I am still diligently working on that. Anybody out there that's in a (laughs) doctoral program knows it is a journey 
So I'm looking at the intersectionality of age, race, and gender as it relates to Black millennial women in the workplace and learning more about their lived experiences and how they've been able to advance. So I have interviewed a nice amount of women in the DMV area who work mostly for more corporate or private companies, just talking about literally from childhood to present. Mm. What has been like some of those main factors um, that supported your growth and development to get you to where you are today? But even in the workplace, what are some of the challenges that you're facing and how do you navigate those? Right. And you say their challenges, their successes, their stories, but you yourself are a millennial woman of color in the workplace who's had quite a few moments of success and challenge in your career thus far, right? Yeah, definitely. I think often I am the youngest woman at the table. Right. So I think that on top of being a Black woman is is difficult, right? So there is a lot of intersections with that. So often if it is not about the youth part of like, oh, is she the intern Mm -hmm. or um, support person for the meeting? Is she the one taking notes? People are often very surprised when it's like, oh, she's running the meeting. So I think that's been a challenge for me. I think generationally, the ageism and all of that that takes place is difficult because people may not take you as seriously um, because people assume you're so young and you don't know. Right. And then the layer of being a Black woman at the table when you are very passionate about what you're talking about at work. It's I've been called the angry Black woman. I've been told, oh, you actually really need to calm down or people... You need to meditate or someone has also told me drink chamomile tea before you come to this. You want to make sure you're calm. Oh, my God. That is the most patronizing thing I've ever heard. Yeah. And I think it's difficult to want to sit. You want to sit at the table, but then you realize the people at the table you don't like. Right. And it's like this sense of maybe not belonging, even maybe if you don't look like the people you work with. Or there's such a vast gap in like the ages of people who right. um, you're working with. So I have had people say like, oh, maybe you're too young for this position or you have your whole career to get this raise or you have, you know, you're early in your career. So you have time to grow. Right. You don't necessarily need that next level promotion. Almost a wait your turn. Well, tell us about that, because I know you've been part of the Bossed Up world for a long time now. You were a Bossed Up Bootcamp alum turned Bossed Up Bootcamp trainer, right? Yes, yes. Okay. So when we were talking about your story, as we prepare with all of my trainers for speaking at Bossed Up Bootcamp, I remember learning more about your progress professionally and just how impressive your promotions, your positions, your raises have been and and how that context of your upbringing has made such a impression on how you sought out your professional progress. Can you just give, give our listeners a little background on that or a refresher if they didn't hear your last interview last year? Yeah. So I will definitely say my career has been a progression. I have gotten to a point where I'm grateful for where I am, but I'm originally from Detroit, Michigan, and went to Michigan State undergrad. And soon after that, I came out to the D.C. area and I've worked in education in some respect for the last 10 years. And 
I really will say my job opportunities have been because people were invested in me and they saw something in me. So very Mm. early on, I knew that I had to be taken seriously. So I really was trying to dress the part for every single job that I was on because I literally moved out here when I was 21 years old. Mm-hmm. And so I really do think that's why I talk a lot about image and how you look, how you present yourself, because I do believe that is important. You don't want to look like the intern. You want to make right. sure that you're well put together because often you may be overlooked for that meeting where you can meet other people when you don't look the part. Quick aside, too. I'm recognizing and in reflecting in the past few weeks in particular on privilege and how we can be better at boss stop and how I can be better. I am realizing now more than ever that my, I don't want to say dismissal of fashion and style, but like lack of care is another way of saying it. I may or may not be rocking a t-shirt and sports bra today as in most days, but my sort of like dismissal of fashion and presence and putting myself together early on when I was 26 years old starting this company is a form of entitlement, really, and and power and privilege that goes unappreciated for white people like me. Like the saying, you have to be twice as good to go half as far comes to mind and thinking through how, yeah, you know, a lot of women and a lot of non-white folks might not have the same privilege of being taken seriously as Mark Zuckerberg does in a t-shirt and sneakers. And I totally have been taking that privilege for granted. So it reminds me of how much fashion and presence and putting yourself together plays a big role in looking at professional development intersectionally. And I remember you and I first talking because you came to me and were like, listen, Emily, I know you don't care about fashion, but here's why it should be part of the program at Boston Bootcamp. And I was like, you are so right. It is so connected. So I just want to check my privilege publicly on that for a second. And I mean, this was something that was instilled in me very young. Like, I remember my grandfather saying that every time you leave the house, you're not only representing yourself, but you're representing our entire family. So understanding that you are going to be under additional scrutiny when you go outside. Mm -hmm. So very important that you don't look like what the stereotypes say about Black people, especially about little Black girls. So it was extremely important that... I looked apart. So I'm the girl at Michigan State dressing up for school, Mm -hmm. taking showers. I'm getting like I was never the girl that's like, oh, I didn't shower in two days. Like, no, I got up every single day and got dressed for class. Like I was always combed because I wanted to make sure that it it was just this big scrutiny, uh, especially in classrooms where I was the only black girl. I am in a social relations and kind of policy, public policy program for undergrad where we're talking about literally race, politics, policy, how that all intersects. And every single thing is like, oh, let's ask the resident black girl in the room. So the spotlight was always on me, whether I wanted it to be or not. And I wanted to make sure that I looked the part each and every day. So I felt that need from when it was told to me as a child, I, that has come with me my entire life. So every day, mm. always on because you never know who you may see. And then they may perceive you if you aren't looking the part. Right. And how did that manifest once you entered the working world? You came to D.C. 
you're a professional, you're a young black professional. How, how were you able to leverage your skills and that commitment to presence and professionalism to rise over the past decade? Yeah, I always felt like if I could get in the room with the right people. So that was always my biggest thing of like mm. getting in the room with the right people. And then if I looked the part or looked presentable in some way, people would say like, maybe we could invest in this girl or maybe we could connect her to some people. So one job I, I got working, literally it was through someone that knew my work and I scheduled, set up, a, they wanted to set up a meeting with me. And they're like, just from the presence of how you walked in the room, how confident you were, the way that you looked, we knew you would be a perfect fit for the role. The role is managing over like 10 different school sites. And it's probably about 10 or 15 people in the kitchens at a local district's public school. And I'm managing people at this point, I had to have been like 24. I'm managing people who are literally 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. Right. And I mean, I'm doing progressive discipline. I'm doing write-ups. I'm doing uniform checks. I am doing conflict resolution for people at work who, you know, may have gotten to an argument. I'm doing those mediation conversations at 23. So I've been able to be at the table and lead teams, but it was only because someone gave me that opportunity. And they said he was polished enough. And with some training, we can support her to have a seat at the table. So I I am totally grateful to that. And my experiences, I will say, I won't take them back for anything. It makes you who you are. I mean, it it comes as no surprise then as to why you are studying education leadership, human resource management, little doctoral program here or there, like no big deal, right? I mean, I'm just so impressed by all all you've done and all you've accomplished in your career thus far. And and like y'all need to check out her policy and fashion blog as well, because your your fashion blogging is equally impressive. And knowing that you've got all of this going on in a leadership position at your day job on top of it is is just incredible. Tiffany, and you really, you remind me of how true it is that people are constantly making conclusions about you. And those conclusions are not fully in your control, right? Like there's a lot of bias, sometimes unconscious, sometimes not so unconscious in terms of the conclusions that other people are drawing upon you uh, or about you rather, especially when it comes to opportunities, job interviews, promotion opportunities. What do you want our listeners to know about navigating ageism and, and racism and all those intersections when it comes to taking our power back, when it comes to our presence? Because it feels like a really, a really sticky situation where I can get very dismayed about it because we can't fully control what other people think about us. So what would you want our listeners to know about that? I would say like, if you are in a, in a position of hiring power, mm. or you're making those decisions at the table, just really taking the opportunity to check your bias and put things aside to ensure you have diverse employees at the table. And I think often people hire a lot of people who look like them. 
Mm. But really checking your privilege at the door of saying we need to have a diverse community in uh, the workplace. And for people who are in an even higher position, making sure that you are retaining the diverse talent that you do have at work. Right. How do you ensure that you have an inclusive community and that people are not feeling so isolated in the workplace to the point that they want to change jobs? And that is one of the things I've learned from the research that women were saying that if they changed their hairstyle, it literally became the topic of discussion for the entire day. Mm. In the t- and it, they would just feel this immense, just wanting to literally melt or shrink away because people were putting so much attention on how they looked, but often when they did something good at work, it was barely acknowledged. So making sure that people who are working for you, um, who are from diverse backgrounds, they have, they see people in leadership who look like them. Right. Often it looks like there is a glass ceiling that you just, no one knows that it's there, but the women of color do. And right. other people from other backgrounds or ethnicities may say, oh no, we're inclusive. We hire everybody. But do you really? So right now, looking at your leadership team, is it reflective of this diverse community that you would want for your organization? And then for people who may be working side by side on teams for that have people of color on them now, just this is an interesting time for American society at this point. Black lives always matter to me as a Black woman, but I think it's interesting for people to now see the validity behind it of like, hey, we actually should look into this. We actually should try to make sure that we are honoring and treating people the same way and not as people as as less than, but making sure that you're not putting the burden on the one person of color in your team to try to educate everyone, really taking time to dig into uh, and check your own biases because Mm. every has an element of privilege. Totally. Whether it is beyond just race and gender, but economics, different abilities, whether you have a disability or not, they're all different elements of where those intersect in terms mm. of privilege. So yeah. educating yourself is one thing too, and not really relying on or trying to force that person of color on your right. team to educate you. Yeah. I want to pick up on something you said about inclusion and feeling included versus diversity, which to me, there's a pretty distinctive difference between diversity and inclusion. They're both important. And it sounds like this came up in your research. Can you tell us more about that? Should leaders be thinking about diversity and inclusion as two different things? Like, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think it's fine to say that you have diverse people at your and your organization. But are people really, truly embraced in that environment, in your work environment, is uh, a concern that many of the young women expressed that I interviewed was like, oh, I may have been the person to hire just because it seemed like I was a good candidate and I was Black. However, when I got here, there are people who are every day saying very racial comments, using microaggressions, and I don't feel supported at work or even like I'm supposed, they feel like I'm supposed to be there. People are saying, oh, well, you're, oh, what school did you go to? Oh, 
we make sure we try to get good black candidates from there. So we're happy that you're here. Yeah. What's interesting in that is that a lot of these microaggressions seem innocuous to the people who are committing them, right? Like there's no malintent necessary to be completely inappropriately exclusive and racist at work. Like, I think that's a really important part of this. Like they were saying, oh yeah, we like to, we like to hire black folks from Drexel to be inclusive and get lots of black candidates there. That person might think they are saying something really nice and really appropriate. And of course it's not on people of color to be the racist police, right? And constantly push back on microaggressions. But I'm trying to see in this moment where a lot of non-Black people are finally waking up to Black Lives Matter, you know, how can other white people disrupt that? How can we prevent othering, which I think is a good way to talk about those microaggressions, right? Like the hair comments. They might think they're paying that Black woman a compliment by talking about her hair all day, when in fact she doesn't want to be known for her hair, right? She wants to be known for her her work. I think it's important for other white people at the workplace to call out people who are doing that, right? Yeah. So yeah. when we're saying, oh, oh, someone may be saying, oh, she looks a little upset. She should calm down. Like people need to intervene in that. And I think often what I see is a lot of people sit back and they realize, oh, they probably shouldn't have said that, but no one says anything. But so because they're too uncomfortable or they're scared to challenge different things. So when people, if you notice someone is constantly cutting off your coworker while she's speaking, who's a woman of color, how do you reroute the discussion and say, hey, I think she had something to say. We're going to bring it back to her. Just don't sit back and be right. Just someone on being an onlooker, just looking around on the sidelines, like actually, how can you intervene? How can you use Mm -hmm. the position of power and privilege? Because everybody has elements of things that they control at work. How do you make sure that if you're working with someone that invests in the community, that you're finding a great organization that's going to benefit people of color or how can you ensure that if you're at the seat of the table for hiring, that you're getting candidates of diverse backgrounds, how do you make sure that you apply the pressure where you can to ensure that your organization is bringing in more people who don't look, may not look like you, but in diversifying the community But also when those people come on board, get to know them. I think sometimes people make a lot of assumptions about folks. And I will say that it's important that you build relationships and rapport with people on your teams that may not look like you. And it's okay. So finding ways to actually connect with people and making it intentionally, because often what women have described in the work uh, that I've interviewed is like, oh, there's been these secret gatherings that they've never been invited to. So whether it was happy hour or a barbecue somewhere or a picnic, they've not been invited. And then people come back to the workplace and talk about it. So what does it cost you to just invite someone or make them feel included? If everyone's getting up to go to Starbucks to walk down a block, hey, do you want to come? How do you right. yeah. make sure that you are not intentionally isolating people at work? Yeah, or unintentionally, right? Like, let's all do an audit 
of how inclusive we have been. I love the Starbucks example because I've heard the difference between diversity and inclusion described sometimes as, you know, diversity is inviting lots of different kinds of people to the party. Inclusion is inviting them to the dance floor, right? When they're at the party (laughs) and like saying, let's go, let's hang. I want to also highlight what you said about putting pressure on leaders. A lot of ladies listening to this podcast might not be in hiring or promotion decision-making positions, but that doesn't mean you can't put pressure on those who are. And I remember I was speaking with someone today at a major tech company who said to me, yeah, some people might be feeling like, you know, they're not sure how to do that, or it feels a little risky to do that. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) that's part of it. You know, it's time that people who are not folks of color, it's time that white people start feeling the fear, the risk, the feeling of having actual skin in the game of sticking their neck out on behalf of diversity and inclusion. Like that's what people of color have been doing for a long time. And so that fear that we have of speaking up, of speaking out, white people need to be taking on more of that burden. Like that is really where I'm focusing lately in thinking, you know, how can we be not putting the entire burden of leadership transformation or change leadership on the folks of color in our workplaces? Exactly. I think that one of the biggest things is if you work for an organization did you all put out a statement around Black Lives Matter? What did we say? Was right. it thoughtfully crafted? I think a lot of jobs right now are offering space and opportunity for employees to have like these town hall moments yeah. where they can get feedback. If there is an open forum and someone is saying, we're here to listen to your feedback, that's your opportunity to speak up and say something. If you don't, you're basically just promoting status quo to continue. And make it seem like people are invisible or that you have no power when you had an opportunity to share thoughts and feelings and even challenge leaders. And at the end of the day, I mean, I don't mind being a, a renegade. You know, Tiffany's willing to have courageous conversations. But even in the organization that I work in now, I am not the highest level. So I have a mentor at work and who's a white woman. And I asked her, I'm like, what is the leadership's position on this? How are we going to make sure that we're applying pressure on the mayor? Since I work in the government sector, like what can we do to ensure police have a better relationship with our students, with our neighborhoods that are predominantly Black and Latino, what can we do to apply that pressure? Because you are sitting at a position of privilege and power. So I can't do it personally, but the hope is that you can use your influence to maybe get other people who are in higher leadership positions to enact some change uh, for the better, whether it's in your community or within your organization. Yes, absolutely. And I, I love the the use of mentorship here as a reminder that, you know, progressive change policy advocacy within the workplace can also be part of what mentor mentee relationships look like, right? These are not one way advice giving relationships. This is a mutual exchange of, of calls to action, so to speak, right? And leveraging your mentors, developing relationships with folks with even more power than you have is always a good idea for 
helping not just leverage your power, but leverage other people's power strategically, right? Yeah, yeah. It's about the people that. using the people that you have pre-existing relationship with to really influence change. And I think everyone has a role to play in this and can find a way to influence others to create change. Love it. What what else came up in your research? I know, is this for a doctoral dissertation yes. that you're doing this research? Awesome. What's the nature of the, the dissertation? So it is the intersectionality of age, race, and gender and lived experiences nice. of Black millennial women in the workplace. Nice. Ideally, what I want to get is the stories of Black women who are young. I think often the millennial generation has a, a lot of stereotypes that just aren't what Black women have experienced who are young. Mm-hmm. So the conversation around entitlement they know that they have to work hard. And that has been the largest thing through all of this is I am committed to working hard, to having a successful career. And right. even when I hit rough patches, I still stick stick in that rough spot because I know that I have the capability of being something greater. So one of the biggest things that I have found is that a lot of women are starting to think, maybe that there is a glass ceiling in their organization. And while they may move laterally between different companies, a lot of them are starting to think about entrepreneurship because they don't like the micromanaging. They don't like the microaggressions or they feel like their organization isn't progressing in a positive way is one thing that has come up that's been very interesting. It is so interesting, right? Because I think the meritocracy assumption is very problematic. We've been told, hey, do well, work Mm -hmm. hard, we're inclusive, we're diverse, your hard work will be rewarded. And then how many promotions do you have to see go to people who you feel like you are, you know, you could run laps around before you start to question whether a meritocracy is actually intact at your workplace, including workplaces that proclaim to be all about merit. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I can like get myself into this logical, never ending loop of thinking, well, presence matters. You've got to impress people with your soft skills and your and your leadership identity and your leadership presence. But then what if the soft skills and your hard skills still don't get you those promotions? I think Catalyst came out last year with a, a study that I cite a lot about the sticky floor problem or the broken rung. Mm-hmm. of promotions, how black women in America are some of the most ambitious professionals in the workforce. You ask them, do you want to get to the next level? Do you want a promotion? Do you want to do more and contribute more? And black women are like, hell yes. Mm-hmm. And still we're, we're not getting to that first promotion to, into middle management. And that's really what I'm trying to, for a lot of women, not just women of color, but all women, trying to figure out how do we navigate this when the rules of the game keep changing? It feels like they keep moving the goalposts, right? Yeah, it's either you're there and you're continuously passed by or you're finally given a position of leadership, but mm. is the company is at its worst, right? right. Like everything is literally the bottom of the barrel. Right. And now you're given a leadership position when you're giving crap to, to right. work. Right. You're in a very chaotic situation and people are looking for you to just fix it. So often mm-hmm. 
are presented with this leadership opportunity, you are the cleanup woman. And yes, then it's like, oh, she can't fix it. She can't do the work. But it's like, no, it's been a white man in this position for 10 years and he messed all this up. And now you right. put a black girl in it and you're upset when it can't be turned around in six months. When yeah. you were put in the worst position possible. So people spoke to both sides of like just yeah. believing that they would maybe have to leave their organization, go to another one, and then try to re-enter to be able to come back at a higher level. or maybe managers maybe not invested in in them and i think a big thing is quality feedback like even when you're asking for feedback are people truly giving a direct clear concise and helpful feedback other than oh you did a great job well i can't there's always room for improvement and a lot of women spoke to feeling like they're not getting authentic feedback from their managers I don't know if people are thinking maybe they're scared to provide that feedback to a black woman or they don't, they're afraid of making it seem like a racial issue. But some people talked about that. And then some people Mm. talked about the first mistake they had. They felt like they were on the chopping block to be fired. I think they call that in the research, like the glass cliff concept too, whereby women's, women's mistakes And I I bet this is extra true for women of color, right? Because it has everything to do with visibility. So let's say you're an other of some kind, and I'm using my air quotes here to say that, but Mm -hmm. let's say you are a minority in a majority pale and male environment and you get promoted, you stand out because of the lack of other people who look like you in a leadership position. Now, when you make a mistake, it's a, well, we can't have women in this position conclusion, you know, or it's a, well, here's just another angry black woman co- mm-hmm. conclusion that pops up in people's heads, whether unconsciously or consciously. It brings yeah. added visibility and added kind of consequence to women's mistakes. Yeah. Uh, whereas men are given a second chance on a lot more or, or the freedom to make mistakes on the road to success in a much more understanding way. And it doesn't turn into a gender thing like, oh, this is why we can't have men in leadership. <laughs> which is just so confounding. He didn't know he was new. And it's the fact that not only that you, that they're able to make mistakes, but the team can move on. So one yeah. lady in particular, one young girl, I was a uh, one young lady I was talking to for my interview. She talked about making a, one mistake, but then the repercussions of that were people literally double checking her work for the next six to eight months. Jesus. Because of that one mistake. Um, it's not only I made a mistake, but it's like we I made a mistake and no one's going to forget about it. It's like you're yeah. given, so you're constantly under additional scrutiny or under a, micro, a microscope, honestly, and people are analyzing every little thing because it's like a magnifying glass. Yeah. And actually what you're saying reminds me of the parallels in the police brutality realm of this whole movement, right? Because a white 13-year-old boy could walk down the street with a hoodie and the Mm -hmm. consequences are non-existent or lower at the very least than a little black boy walking down the street with a hoodie. And if that little, if both of those little boys make a mistake when a police officer comes by and they decide to run instead of saying, good afternoon, officer, how can I help you, officer? If one of them starts flipping off the officer or running away... That one choice 
has vastly different outcomes in far too many circumstances. Hyper death outcomes for for black men. And I will even say, even this time now with COVID, I know male friends who were like, oh, they want me to go outside with a mask on. I know some people who were literally unsettled by that. I need, in order for me to go grocery shopping, I have to put on this mask. Mm. But I'm like, if they were concerned, like, I hope no one thinks that I'm trying to do something because I'm walking around with this mask. And even early on in COVID, it was still a bit chilly in D.C. So you were wearing maybe a hoodie and your mask. And people were like, well, when should I be out? I probably shouldn't be out too late because I have to wear this mask now. Oh, God. It was extra pressure on people of like, I need to be in the right place at the right time because Uh, I can't afford to look too suspicious because I am already concealing half of my face. Yeah, not because I'm trying to hide anything. It's because we're literally in a pandemic. It affects people in so many different ways. And I think that there's been so many discussions and even how this translates to our, our kids and what we're telling them about how you have to interact with the police or Mm. people are having very explicit discussions with their black sons about how you need to interact with the police and what you need to do when you encounter them. And they are not always friend. They may see you as foe from the beginning. And Mm. there is a quick turn between when a black boy is cute and joyful to a threat for some people. And you want to really make sure, unfortunately, parents have to have this conversation with their kids very young. Yeah, (laughs) it's troubling. I mean, I don't think it's our job to try to make this light, right? Like we're not trying to say, and everything's great, the end. You know, this is an important time to acknowledge the injustice on every level, whether it's in the streets, in our own homes, or in our workplaces. What have you, I realize I could talk to you forever about this, but we probably should wrap this up. What do you want our listeners, both women of color and white women, to know about the women you've been interviewing for your dissertation, through your program, the women you work with, and about you, a young millennial black woman in the workplace? What do you want folks to take away about this? I think for non-people of color, like black people are not a monolith. There is no one type of black woman and really understanding that everybody has their own story and they're their own person. So really not uh, trying your hardest to cast aside those stereotypes about what you think black women are, because we are many things. And I would say making sure that you're really checking in your um, bias and really identifying like what are some of your blind spots, whether that is through research and reading about different things that are happening today, but also in the workplace, using Mm. your influence to create change. Everyone has everyone is a leader, whether you are at the lowest level or the highest level on the totem pole. Everyone has an opportunity to create change in the workplace. I truly believe that. I love it. Words to live by, wonderful words to end on. Tiffany, thank you so much for sharing your time and even more of your fabulous talents with our community today. Where can our listeners head to find out more about you, to keep up with you, to celebrate your work? Um, I am on Instagram at Policy and Fashion. I'm also on 
LinkedIn and under Tiffany Ingram. And you can also find my blog at policyandfashion.com. Awesome. We will drop links to all of those wonderful places in today's show notes, along with a link to Tiffany's other great interview on the podcast from last year, more about bossing up your wardrobe on a budget, which is a totally different topic, but it truly amazes me how much expertise you have to bring to our community. Tiffany, thanks again for joining me. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. Learn more about Tiffany and where you can follow her at bossedup.org slash episode 236 where you can also weigh in via the comment section at the bottom of our blog post and share that post with the women in your world who need to hear this important conversation. And now it's time for our boss move of the week. This one comes straight out of the Boss Up Courage community from Sonia. She writes, I started a conversation with my department about race and the role slash duty of our organization to speak up about everything that's been going on. It took some pushing and sharing of videos to help explain the urgency, but our org released a statement of support and is actively working on resources and trainings for our clients and staff. Yes, Sonia, this is exactly the kind of action I am so delighted to hear you're taking, and I hope inspires more of our listeners to take similar action now to demand not only transparency or diversity and inclusion efforts from our leaders at work, But even more public-facing responses like statements and commitments and public promises or public contributions that organizations all across the nation can make right now to show their solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement and to make a powerful public statement for the need for change. We've got a lot of work to do. We are This movement, I should say, is far from over, but I am so inspired and encouraged by the progress we're seeing, by the numbers globally of people who are speaking out and taking action and not sitting on the sidelines anymore. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Thank you for sharing today's episode so that Tiffany's voice can be heard by even more folks out there who need to hear about her experiences and her research and the great practical advice that she shared in thinking through how to move forward on combating racism, ageism, and everything in between in the workplace. Until next time, let's keep bossing in pursuit of our purpose. And together, as the motto of the first African-American Women's Association in America said, let's lift as we climb. <laughs>